Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit now and anoint the preaching of your word, Lord, that it might go forth with clarity, integrity, authenticity, and power. Lord, that it would be a word from you and not a word from man. Lord, I pray for all of us gathered here today that uh, the distractions and or any, any interference in our lives spiritually that would prohibit us or inhibit us from experiencing the truth of the gospel, receiving it this morning, we, in the name of Jesus, bind that by his blood and his cross and say over it, it has no authority in this place this morning. You alone, Lord Jesus, reign supreme in the power of your Holy Spirit through the word of God to the glory of God the Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you have been keeping up, but if you have, you will probably think that somehow we have unintentionally and maybe I would say providentially swerved into a sermon series from the prophet Isaiah this morning. I never would have anticipated doing that, but providentially that's where uh, Father Benji and I have both been led to preach, at least for the first three Sundays of Advent. And as you will recall, Father Benji said last week as we talked about this season of Advent, which is a season that is defined by hope. Advent is a season defined by hope. Father Benji reminded us last week that hope for us as followers of Jesus Christ is, is not wishful thinking. When we talk about hope, we're not talking about just wishing for something. Now, when I was a little boy, we would get the Sears and Roebuck uh, Christmas catalog, and we would get the J.C. Penney catalog. Uh, Roebuck, Sears and Roebuck and J.C. Penney were stores before Amazon ate the world. And, uh, and so, but we would get those, those catalogs and there would be a toy section in the back of those. And it was called the Wish Book. One of them was called the Wish Book. And we'd open that up and, oh my goodness, I wish I could get, you know, Hot Wheels racetrack and race cars for Christmas or whatever. So that's sort of that wishful thinking kind of thing, longing for something in that way. But it's not certain. Father Benji reminded us that hope is not wishing Hope is a certainty that God, what God has promised will be fulfilled. Hope is the certainty that what God has promised will be fulfilled. It is a yearning for the good, good future that God really has promised us in Jesus Christ. And as we look back to the first coming of Jesus, which is what we're going to be celebrating at Christmas time, right? As we look back to God keeping his promise and, and sending Messiah when Messiah came the first time because he was faithful to do that, we know that the promises he's made in the future will likewise be fulfilled. So Jesus Christ is the benchmark of God's faithfulness, and because of him, we hope in a way that's not wishful, but in a way that is certain of God's fulfillment of his promises. This is what Paul told the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, that's the book, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says this, and he's talking exactly about what I just mentioned. For all the promises of God find their yes, all right, all the promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why through Jesus, through him, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In other words, 
If we want to be confident that God will keep his promise that he made to us about our future, all we have to do is to look at his faithfulness through Jesus Christ in the past. Does that make sense? He said he was going to send Messiah. He sent Messiah. So he was going to send a Savior. He sent a Savior. So all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, which brings us to this passage this morning in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah's prophecy is a glimpse into God's good future, what God promises his good future for us. And if we are, so if we are worried this morning, or we're anxious this morning, or we're upset about what the future will bring, the Advent hope proclaimed here in Isaiah 65 is exactly what we need to hear. All that good stuff. I'm creating a new heaven, and creating new heavens and new earth. That's what we need to hear. However, please listen to this part. We need to remember that Isaiah's promise of that new creation and all those wonderful things he said is made to those who serve and follow Israel's God, Yahweh, a people who have given themselves completely over to God. In the passage previous to what we just read, he talks about the, his faithful servants. So that's what we're talking about because God does make a distinction between those who trust and follow him and those who do not. We do not believe because the Bible does not teach some type of universalism. I would love for that to be there. I, would long, I, I have a pious hope for it, but it's not in the scriptures anywhere. So immediately before our passage this morning, this is what God says. Listen to this. This is Isaiah, if you are following along in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 65, beginning at the second verse. We're going to read verses 2 and 3 and then jump down to verses 6 and 7. So this is what God is saying. Listen, this, this is so pertinent even today. God says, I spread out my hands. Uh, the, the phrase that's actually used there is the same phrase that's used in the Old Testament in, in Hebrew for when someone spreads out their hands in prayer, pleading with God in prayer. So here's what God is saying. I, I supplicate you. I plead with you. He says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. Well, how is it not good? Following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, and making offerings on bricks. Well, that sounds strange, but we'll get to that. What is he talking about here? Behold, this is verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay, I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. So, right here in this passage, previous to what we just read, uh, in 65 during the Bible reading this morning, there exists what God calls a rebellious, a rebellious people. How are they rebellious? They turn away from God and they walk in a way that is not good. It says they walk in a way that is not good. And what is, this is, I know I'm, I'm being kind of pedantic because preachers are pedantic sometimes. Uh, that's your word for today, pedantic. All right, so, uh, they, but what is, what does that look like? They walk in a way that is not good. What exactly are you talking about? What is that? It's, that it's this. They make up their own religion to suit themselves. 
That's what it means when it says they follow, following their own what? Devices, devices. Now, if you are an Anglican and you pray the morning prayer, even if you're not Anglican and you're using the prayer book and praying morning and evening prayer, in that prayer of confession, we say we, that part of what we confess is we follow too much the what? Devices and desires of our own hearts. What is, these, what is this devices thing that we're talking about? Well, that's what it means. It means that we don't submit to God. This is what he's talking about in this passage. He's talking to a people that do not want to submit to God's authority. Ready? So they create their own pet religion with their own made-up little deities and their own rituals that they can control. They go to the religion buffet, you know, the one where you sacrifice in the garden and sacrifice on the bricks. They go to the religion buffet, and they take little bits of religions that they like, and they leave out the bits of religions that they don't like. They want to get the Salisbury steak. They're not eating that red beet stuff. No, that's horrible. Who would want that in their religion? <laughs> don't you know what a buffet's got on it? All right, so... So this, beloved, however, that, that attitude is the very essence of human sin, this desire to be in control, the desire essentially to be our own God. That's the devices. They follow their own devices. So one commentator says of that passage this. He says, we have devised worship practices that we believe will make it possible to manipulate God to act in our favor, to manipulate God to act in our favor while we retain the option to live our lives for ourselves. Isn't that what we do? This was the function of heathen ritual. I'm still reading this passage from this commentator. By doing certain things here on earth, the pagans believed that the attitudes and behaviors of the gods were automatically altered. The attitude of the worshiper was unimportant. So your heart doesn't matter. The attitude of the worshiper was unimportant. What mattered was whether the ritual was done correctly. If so, then the desired results could be expected. So that is a self-focused and not a God-focused form of religion. The religion of self-rule, God says here in Isaiah, in this passage in Isaiah, that religion of self-rule is what? It is a provocation. That's the word that's used here. It, these are people who provoke me. It is a provocation. Provocation. It is a fist shaken in the face of Yahweh. And this is not just a problem in Israel's time. Rather, this is the condition of many today. We reject Jesus Christ. We refuse to surrender completely to him and accept his offer of salvation precisely because, see, we would love to go to the religion buffet and get a little Jesus. Oh, I'll take a little of the, I like the eternal life stuff and, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot or whatever stuff, but I don't, I don't want that part where you make the rules part, Jesus. So we reject Jesus Christ in his totality, we refuse to surrender him and accept his offer of salvation precisely because we want to be the boss of our own lives. We want to be the boss of our own lives. In contrast, and this is critical, okay, at this point, genuinely being in right relationship with God is this. This is what Jesus Christ 
has taught us. It's Matthew chapter 16, verses 25 and 20, uh, 24 and 25. It may be very familiar to some of you. This is, this is genuine right relationship with God. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him do what he wants to do. No, this is what it says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. What is a cross? It's a means of death. In other words, we're dying to self, dying to ruling our own life, and then following Jesus and letting him be the Lord of our life. So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Then listen to what Jesus says. Ready? For whoever would save his life, in other words, whoever wants to remain in control of his life, I'm going to manipulate the world around me. I'm going to be the Lord of my own life. I'm going to control my life. Jesus says, for whoever will save his life will lose it. And I see this verified experientially every single day. As people try to control their own lives, there's relational chaos, there's financial chaos, there's spiritual chaos, they're, they get angrier and angrier, they grasp more and more tightly to their lives, I'm going to be in control, and the more in control they become, the more they ruin their existence, and as they ruin, ruin their own existence, just as it says in Proverbs, a man's own ways destroys his life, but in his heart he rages against the Lord. God, why are you messing my life up? If there was really God, my life wouldn't suck so bad. Maybe if God was God of your life and you weren't, it wouldn't suck so bad. Then Jesus goes on to say, but whoever loses his life for my sake, in other words, Gives himself over to me. You're, I'm offering you my life. Here's my whole existence, Jesus. I stop making the rules. I'm stopping being in charge of my own life right now. I, I'm throwing myself into your arms, and I'm so afraid that I'm going to lose control, but I know that I haven't done a good job right now, so I give myself to you. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the life that is truly life. Does that make sense? Or, or, or am I being clear, I should say? Not, I'm not sure that it really does make sense. Lose your life and you save it. But that's what Jesus' promises. If we choose, rather, to, instead of going this way, but we rather choose to remain in a posture of unrepentance and self-rule, we will not receive the wonderful promises that we heard proclaimed today, but rather God says to the rebellious, this is what the Lord says, I will destine you to the sword, in other words, judgment. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, when I called, I called you. You knew I was calling you. When I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. But the good news is, if we surrender to Israel's God revealed in Jesus Christ, if we offer our lives to him, receive him by faith, just listen to the hope we have as God's covenant people. This is what God promises us. This is when we talk about Advent hope. What can be, we be certain in? What can we look forward to with confidence? This is what it says, Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. Isaiah 65, 17. God says, for behold, I, cre I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now, this, this isn't just the hope God offers to disappointed Jewish exiles 
that have returned from Babylonian captivity and things are not working out the way they wanted to work out. This is, what, this is God's promise for all of God's covenant people, or we would call it God's eschatological, ultimate fulfillment promise for all of God's covenant people, Israel and the Israel that is the church. This is a promise to you, brothers and sisters, this morning. This is a promise to you. These words from Isaiah, that we, what we just heard, are taken up and intensified, amplified in Revelation chapter 21. Listen to what it says. This is John speaking, John the Revelator. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. Here's that Jerusalem we heard mentioned in Isaiah's prophecy. But This is what it says. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. So you, just because you're in heaven doesn't mean you're not going to hear loud voices anymore. Sorry, you're hearing one this morning, but it's going to be loud there too occasionally. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying... Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen, this is beautiful. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 2020, you do not get the last word. Death shall be no more. We didn't read it this morning, but Isaiah 25, God says, I will swallow up death. It'll be no more. For the former things, it goes on to say, death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, the former things have passed away. That The former things have passed away. Listen to that verse because go back to verse 17 of Isaiah Listen to this portion of Isaiah 65, verse 17 again. And the, listen, the former things will not be remembered or come into mind. In the new heavens and the new earth, in God's new creation, the power of the renewal of all things will be so overwhelming that it will work backward to purge away all of the pain and the sorrow and, please listen, the regret, the regret of the old creation. The former things, it says, will not be remembered anymore. In other words, the loop of regret, the loop of regret that plays in so many of our minds right now will not be remembered. It will be taken away. There will be nothing to taint the bright glory of that new reality. C.S. Lewis in his book, and you've got to read it if you haven't read it, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. He says this, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal, in other words, this worldly, they say of some temporal suffering, no bliss can make up for it. No bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. God's goodness and his fulfillment in that new creation is so powerful. It is going to work backwards. 
Thanks be to God. You know, pain and sorrow are bad, but for me, you know what's worse even than that is regret. It's a special kind of sorrow. The older we get, the more regrets we pile up in life. Mistakes we've made, opportunities we've lost. We have said things that we cannot unsay. And we have done things to people that, has, that have permanently wounded them and we can't undo them. And we look back and we have a loop of regret and that loop gets a little more added to it every day. But brothers and sisters, people of God, all of that will be wiped away by the glory and joy of the new creation. Heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. So somehow, in God's amazing grace, everything that I have messed up in life, where I, all the things that I broke so bad, I can't unbreak them. All the things I've done so wrong, I can't fix them. God is bigger than that. God, God is bigger than that. United to Christ, in God's consummation of all things, God is bigger than all of our sin and all of our mistakes and all of our regrets. I need, I need to hear that. Don't you need to hear that? Yes. Has your life been so flawless you don't need to hear that? Now here's something else to think about. You know, the older we... I've said this twice now in this sermon. I'm thinking about getting older, I guess. But the older... Because I'm almost to the point where I can legitimately go on Thursday and get my senior discount at Harris Teeter. <laughs> Give me that 5%, baby. I want it now. <laughs> but... Here's something to think about. The older we get, listen, the more difficult it becomes to experience unrestrained, unadulterated joy and gladness. The older we get, the more difficult it becomes to experience unrestrained, unadulterated joy and gladness. When you are a very young child, you can experience joy and gladness in a thoroughly profound way because you do not yet realize just how temporary and fleeting that moment will be. It's gladness, gladness like a perfect blue sky without a trace of a cloud of worry or apprehension or world weariness to mar its perfection. Little children can have that kind of joy, and they do. Some of them you're going to see have it this time of year. Can you remember that? Do you remember that kind of joy? I can't. <laughs> I know it happens. I see it in little children. But here's where I get, here's where I get to see that joy, where, where it's unrestrained, it's untainted by the worry of what's going to happen next. It's, when, it's in my dog, Jaeger. Because when I come home, it is, oh, oh, the pack leader has returned. <laughs> Let all canines rejoice. Behold, he has arrived. There's no, there's no taint of he's not thinking about the future when pack leader's going to go away again. No, it's just un, unadulterated, untainted joy in that moment. Well, brothers and sisters, the good news is this, um, that we can have that kind of joy. You see, right now as we age, we, we know that every moment of joy will inevitably in this, in this world be followed by times of disappointment and pain. 
And here's what happens to, are you listening? Here's what happens to the human heart. We lose our ability to give ourselves over completely to joy and gladness. There's always that reservation. There's always that temporizing awareness, that voice in the back of our mind that says this. When we experience joy and gladness, even in worship, I know this happens. It says, it says to us, oh, don't get too carried away. You know, this isn't going to last. Well, the good news is this. You and I were created for everlasting joy that will never be tamped down by worry of what comes next. And that's what's promised to God's people, the people who love and follow God in this passage. I'm going to read it to you again. Isaiah 65, verses 18 and 19. And if you're following along, you can turn right there and look at it as well. Isaiah 65, verses 18 and 19 be glad and rejoice forever. In other words, that thought in the back of your head, you know this is going to end, that thought is going to go away. Be glad, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem. I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. You will be a gladness, a gladness to whom I rejoice. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, that, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Unending, untainted gladness. Good news. And every last bit of the passage from Isaiah that we read this morning is an amplification of just those verses. It is a poem of joyful fulfillment where life is not cut short, where our work is fulfilling, and where all of creation itself is at peace with itself. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> and when we have that confident hope, here's what happens. I've been reading a lot lately about um, uh, Christian dissidents during the time of the Soviet Union and then so the Soviet bloc, Soviet Union and all those uh, um, annexed Soviet bloc states that were, were in a perimeter around the Soviet Union. And I was re I've been reading about the experience of Christian dissidents during that time, even those who went to jail, even those who were tortured for their faith in Jesus Christ, and here's the thing is that even in prison, here's what can happen. Uh, when we have this kind of hope, when we're, when we're living in this reality, what, when we're confident in the goodness of God in the future, here's what happens. We pull that, that part of that good future into the present. So the, even when we're experiencing suffering and pain in this life, we still have a taste of that joy and that goodness, and that happens over and over. It is the testimony of Christian discipleship. That kind of hope that God is faithful to keep His promises is exactly how we interact, listen, with what we call the mysteries or the sacraments. Because God kept His greatest promise to send a Savior who would free us from the power and punishment of our sins, we can be confident of this. When we come to His table, He says, I'm going to meet you here. He's kept His promise in Jesus Christ. He will meet us here again under signs of bread and wine. We can have that confidence. When He says, you know, when you baptize, I'm going to be present and my, my power to save will be present in baptism, we can be confident in that. Brothers and sisters, in the, may God this morning, please, in the power of your Holy Spirit, Father God, 
May our, the future goodness that you would have us experience leak into this present moment as we come to your table and feast with you. And Lord, if this in this moment we are trying to manipulate you, we're in control of our own lives, Lord, show us the futility of that and give us the grace to turn away from self-rule to being ruled by Christ, losing our lives for your sake so that we might find the life that is truly life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.